worship doesn't automatically happen just because of where you are and what you're doing. True worship is not a question of where you are, but what's going on in your heart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Heart of Worship. We're looking at the theme of worship as revealed throughout the Bible. And today, Tom will open the Gospel of John and teach on the amazing exchange between Christ and the Samaritan woman at the well. What is it about this incredible interaction that makes it so different from others? And most importantly, what foundational truths about worship are taught in this passage? You'll find out today when Tom unpacks the rich truths of God's Word as he continues to explore the foundations of true biblical worship. Friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Our study of biblical worship, let me remind you, has been built on four foundational principles. Principle number one is the end for which God made the world was his own glory. God was motivated and moved by nothing else in creating everything that is made except for his own glory. Principle number two The chief end of man, therefore, is to glorify God. If God made everything for his own glory, it means he made you for his own glory and me for his own glory as well. That means our chief end, the reason we are here, is to bring glory to God. Number three, you and I were made to worship. You were made to worship. You see, if we were Made to glorify God, the chief way that intelligent beings glorify God or bring glory to Him is through their worship. And last week, we added a fourth foundational principle. God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship Him. So you and I were made to worship the true God. God requires it of us. God demands it of us. God requires it and demands it of you. But there's a great problem and a very unsettling problem, and it's this. Not all that claims to be worship is, in fact, true worship. As we've learned over the last number of weeks, the world is full of what the Bible calls idolatry, false worship. Our hearts are, as John Calvin said, a factory of idols. We can turn anything into an object that pulls our minds and hearts away from God in the place that he deserves. But there's another problem. Not even all that claims to be the worship of the true God is true worship. As we saw last week with Nadab and Abihu and with the incident of the golden calf in the book of Exodus, you can intend to worship the true God and yet do so in such a way that invites the anger of God. So that means that the crucial question that we have to ask and answer is this, how exactly has God prescribed that he be worshipped? 
we will examine the specific elements, components, or if you like, activities of worship that are acceptable to God. But before we get to the activities of worship, we first need to understand the heart and the soul of worship. We need to learn God's perspective on worship, the divine standards, the the canons, the rules, the tenets, the directives of what makes our worship acceptable to God. And who better to teach us that than the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ? I want us to turn to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. This morning and next Sunday, if the Lord wills, I want us to study our Lord's words in John chapter 4. Because toward the end of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, Jesus teaches us exactly how to worship. Not the elements of worship, not the activities of worship, we'll get to that, but rather he teaches us how to worship in the most foundational sense. He teaches us about the heart of worship. Now, before we can fully appreciate Jesus' words toward the end of this chapter, we need to get our arms around the context in which Jesus speaks them. You will see as we go along that that's crucial to understanding what Jesus wants to teach us about worship. So we need to get the flow of the context. It begins, of course, in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not actually baptizing, but his disciples were, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now, Jesus here was not afraid of the Pharisees and what they might do to him. He told his disciples, remember, that he had come to give his life a ransom for many. He wasn't afraid of death. That was coming. That's why he came. Instead, what's happening here is the concern he has is that the antagonism of the Pharisees not come to a head too soon. Jesus was on a timetable that was established by his father. And so to bring their anger down from what we could say was a full boil to a slow simmer, he leaves Judea and he goes north to the region around the Sea of Galilee. That's the ministry context in which this incident occurs. Notice in verse 4, the theological context. It says, And he, that is Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. The Greek text literally says it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Now, the Pharisees and the ultra-legalists of that day absolutely hated the Samaritans and were so afraid of being tainted by them that they actually would take the long way around to avoid going through the land of Samaria. They'd take the long way to Galilee. They would go east until they got to Jericho, and at Jericho they would cross the Jordan River, and then they would go up the Jordan Rift Valley until they got up north near Galilee, cross back over the Jordan, and get to the main cities of Galilee. But most of the people weren't so strict, and they just took the shortcut, the short route, through Samaria. Josephus says this was the normal route that Galileans took to the feasts in Jerusalem. 
So verse 4 could simply mean that it was necessary for Jesus to take this route because it was the normal route to Galilee. But John likes to use this Greek word, it was necessary, translated here as he must or he had to. John loves to use this word to describe something more, Jesus' mission. This statement may include a more profound point than simply his travel plans. It may be that Christ was compelled by God's providential purpose to go through Samaria for the sake of a woman and the others that he meets in the little town of Sychar. Notice verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. If you went to the land of Israel today, you can still see this well. It's in the modern village of Askar. It's one of the better established sites that we can be fairly certain is legitimate. In Genesis 33, we learn that Jacob bought land in this area, and undoubtedly this was the reference that we have here, and he dug a well. Now, there are many springs in the area. In fact, some would estimate as many as 70 to 80 natural springs in the area of this well, but it's possible that by the time Jacob finally arrived, All of those had been claimed as property of local tribes. And so to keep from creating issues with his neighbors, Jacob decides simply to dig a well to supply his family and herds. It was no small task. In fact, in Jesus' day, this well was more than 100 feet deep. That brings us then to the interchange between Jesus and this woman. Notice the middle of verse 6. So Jesus being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. You know, I think it's completely fascinating that in a gospel given to us to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, John gives us these glimpses, these remarkable glimpses into Jesus' true humanity. It was the sixth hour, or in our way of counting, about noon, Jesus and his disciples had been walking all morning. Undoubtedly, they'd left this mor- that morning for their journey to the Galilee. And they'd been walking all morning, probably at a brisk pace. And Jesus at this point, by noon, is genuinely tired and thirsty, just like you and I get. So he sits here by the well to rest. Notice verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, to fully appreciate what's going on here, you really have to take yourself back into the culture of first century Israel. You have to understand what makes this highly unusual. First of all, this was a Samaritan. Now, the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans went back literally 750 years. You'll remember that when Samaria, the northern part of Israel, was captured by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., they deported most of the the people of substance, and they left only a few stragglers in Samaria. 
But they imported then to repopulate the land people from all over the Assyrian Empire. Those people came in by the droves and they intermarried with those few straggling Jews that were left and the result was the Samaritans. Now, these people who came from all over the Assyrian Empire brought their own polytheistic views, their beliefs in many gods, and for a time that polytheism influenced the culture, but over time the polytheism faded away and these people, these Samaritans, became worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but with a few strange twists. First of all, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as inspired. Those are the only books from God, they said. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Secondly, they refused to worship in Jerusalem. Instead, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, about 400 years before Christ. So understand how the Jews thought of these people. To the Jewish people, these Samaritans were half-breed idolaters, and they were hated. So the woman asked then, what? You are a Jew, and you ask me for a drink? Me, a Samaritan? Now, why would this be a problem for Jesus to ask the Samaritan woman for a drink? I mean, after all, obviously the Jews could travel through Samaria. That's why Jesus is here. And the disciples at this very moment in time are in the city of Sychar purchasing food for them to eat from the Samaritans. Well, John explains the problem at the end of verse 9. Literally, the Greek text says, For Jews do not use together with Samaritans. In other words, Jews don't use the same utensils or vessels with Samaritans. And to do so was to ceremonially defile yourself. So here's the problem. Jesus wants a drink of water, but the only vessel there is the pot that the woman has and maybe a cup that she brought. And so Jews don't use the same implements as Samaritans, she says, because, or John says, because that would make them ceremonially unclean. So her first problem, her first strike against her was that she was a Samaritan. But this wasn't just any Samaritan. This was a woman. Now, that doesn't seem odd to us at first blush, but you have to understand that no rabbi of Jesus' time would have ever carried on a conversation like this with a woman that he didn't know. In fact, one Jewish document of the time says this, Talk not much with womankind. The elders said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his friend's wife? Hence, the sages have said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at the last will inherit Gehenna. An ancient prayer that's still in the Jewish prayer book says, blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Don't laugh too loud, men. So two strikes this woman had against her. She was a Samaritan, and in that time, the strike was that she was a woman. But there's a third strike, because this woman is not just any woman. She's here drawing water at noon. Now, most of the time, women drew water in the cool parts of the day, usually at sunset, around sunset. And understand that in that culture, drawing water was really a social activity. Think of Jacob's well as kind of an ancient version of Starbucks. 
Now, it may be that this woman had good reasons, good practical reasons for coming at noon and for coming alone, but more likely, she was purposefully avoiding the other women of that community because as we will soon find out, she has been married to five of the men in this small community and she's now living with a sixth. She undoubtedly was a pariah and an outcast with the other women in this small town. Like Hester in Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, this woman wears the scarlet letter. Now in the interest of time, let me just read the first part of Jesus' discussion with this woman. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water, literally leaping up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now you understand, of course, that this is an amazing interchange of our Lord as he shares the truth of himself and the gospel with her. Jesus is here offering this woman the living water of eternal life. That living water that is connected to the work of the Spirit of God. But she doesn't get it. Either she's incredibly dense or she purposefully is avoiding the spiritual point Jesus is making. As you look through what we've just examined already of this chapter, there are many practical lessons in these verses. I don't have time to make them are you except for one this has nothing to do with the theme of my message this morning I'm just throwing it in for free one thing stood out to me this week as I studied this passage I could not help but being struck by Jesus sincere love of people here was the worst of people and yet he strikes up a conversation with her and his intent was not merely to get a drink of water but to reach her soul he loved her This is to be true of all of us as well. You know, my family and I are reading together a book called Trials and Triumphs. It's filled with brief stories from church history of famous Christians and their stand for Christ. This week, we read the story of Ambrose. Maybe you've heard of him. Ambrose served as the Bishop of Milan in the 300s A.D., Ambrose was a remarkable man for many different reasons. It was under his ministry that the church father, Augustine, came to faith in Christ. Listen to what Augustine said about Ambrose and his love for him. Augustine said, that man, that is Ambrose, that man welcomed me as a father. I began to love him first, not as a teacher of the truth, but simply as a man who was kind and generous to me. You and I have that kind of genuine interest in people, the kind Ambrose had, the kind our Lord perfectly exemplifies here in John 4. Now we come to what is, most commentators agree, the heart of this passage. 
and where I want us to learn about worship. Verse 20, the woman says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Those are rich and profound verses. Because in these verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship God. He shows us what a heart for worship looks like. True worship is obviously the theme of this paragraph. John uses the Greek word for worship some 11 times in his gospel. Nine of those 11 occurrences are in those verses I just read to you. In this brief section, our Lord opens up the heart of worship. In fact, we could put it this way. Jesus here identifies for us four inviolable laws of worship. Four inviolable laws of true worship. Inviolable law of worship number one. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. True worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Notice in verse 20, the woman says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, this woman makes a statement, but it's really a question. You need to learn this, men. This happens sometimes. This is really a question, and her question here may have been sincerely motivated. Remember, back in verse 19, she's just concluded that Jesus is a prophet, and so it would be perfectly natural for her to ask this question because this question went to the heart of what had divided the Jews and Samaritans for literally hundreds of years. And so here's a prophet, here's this compelling question that has been on my heart for years, I'm going to ask it of this man. That's possible. More likely, however, she was just very uncomfortable with the personal direction the conversation had taken just a moment before, and this is a way to send it in a different direction altogether. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will have part four for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word, and we do hope you'll join us then. 
And Tom, the main emphasis of worshiping in spirit and truth notwithstanding, today's passage also emphasizes just how important it is to approach people with the gospel, even those maybe outside their comfort zone. That's exactly right, Bill. You know, I think we learn from Christ's example here that we ought not limit the power of the gospel. I think we're prone to look around us and the people at our work and in our schools and our neighborhoods who are least likely to believe the gospel and to ignore them. The truth is, it's the power of the Word and the Spirit that brings someone to faith in Christ. And so don't ever be afraid to bring that gospel to bear into the life of anyone, even those who seem the most likely to believe it. Who would have ever imagined at a human level that this woman would be one who would respond to the gospel? And yet, God was at work through the word and through his son to bring her to faith. May God use us to be alert to those opportunities every day. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.